On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group continues to discuss Pink Floyd's The Wall. a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined right now by my very good friends Paul Zotter and Tom Corcoran, and hopefully Ken Gregory will be along a little bit later as we continue our discussion on Pink Floyd's The Wall. Gentlemen, welcome to regular Palaver time, as uh, we are now in part two of what I'm assuming is going to wind up being a three-part series on the wall. Uh, you know, it's amazing to think, and for some reason I've had our, our humble beginnings in my mind for the last few days or so, and to think that we blew through four Marillion albums in about an hour. <laughs> and and now we're, we're going to spend the better part of, of four or five or six hours talking about the wall. It's just, but, but, uh, it's amazing. But Joe, we are going to rectify that. We are. We are going to go back and we're going to talk a lot about uh, the first four Marillion albums. Have no fear. Wow. Wow. Damn straight we are. Very much looking forward to that, and I'm very much looking forward to this. It's in, in some ways, it's it's always a bit of a treat, right? When we're doing this, and we kind of spill over. Now, this is this is the third Pink Floyd album that we've spilled over. Uh, it's, it's, we did two episodes on Dark Side. We did two episodes on Animals, and now we're going to do this marathon session on on the wall and um it, yeah it, it's nice when sometimes when we sort of carry over and you get to sort of spend an extra week with with this i don't know how your preparation goes for this but normally it's you know it's it's about a week of really focused listening and and sometimes that's you know maybe just not enough as we start to have these conversations and it makes you want to go back and listen to some more and so i was very happy for sort of the bonus time to spend listening to the wall and um yeah i just i think it's really cool this is gonna be great i know that we already did a lot uh last week and we're you probably want to jump right into the the songs but there's something that's been sort of bothering me a little bit. Um, I recently saw an interview with Roger Waters. And oh boy. so uh, this this is about the album. Uh, and it's, it's not about politics. Uh, it's, it's, it's not about politics. Don't worry. But I recently saw an interview and last week, I, I brought up how ironic it was that we were doing, we were talking about the wall, and the wall is primarily about isolation, and we were doing this all during COVID. 
Right. And spending a lot of time, it was just really interesting diving into the wall, going over the lyrics and, and meanings and, and, and just really getting into Roger Waters' head during this time. Because this really is a time of isolation for us as well. So I really got close to this material and I, I, I really, well, I, I've had a great time. But there was an interview with Roger Waters where he was recently talking about his recent wall tour. Mm-hmm. And he was asked, what are the differences between the, the wall tour back in the day uh, when the album was released and this one? And he gave an answer that I just, I, I didn't agree with. And I want to hear what you think, Joe, cause you just saw him recently live. Now it wasn't, it wasn't the wall show. It wasn't the wall tour. It, it, it was, another. it was not. No. Okay. All right. So, he said that, well, the, the, the latest one was more about the politics. Uh-huh. And it was a lot about the politics and less about the character, Pink. And a lot less about the isolation and the, uh, what the character was going through. Now, guys, we've been going through the wall now for a couple weeks and you know we're doing a lot of listening and 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 going over this now correct me if i'm wrong but i mean there's really only a couple songs that you could really tie into politics i mean a lot of this is really about isolation and his story his loss of his father his uh, overbearing mother his, his overbearing mother um the his his life in in school, uh, I mean, the th- things that things that when you're talking about the building of the wall, I don't. And believe me, I want to have a discussion on this. If I'm if I'm wrong, tell me. I'm not. There are only a, a couple of uh, songs that you can really say, okay, this is about politics, and even those songs are like hallucinations, <laughs> anyway. So uh, I'm I'm wondering, like, what he was thinking like did he just really want to forget his past or did he really just want to tie in a lot more politics because that's where his heart and soul are right now and he just wants to get more political because the wall that i'm learning about right now and the wall that i've known my whole life since i was you know 13 14 or whatever i'm it's a little bit different than what Roger Waters is talking about now. So, um, is is it just me, or is it he a little bit off kilter to what the wall originally was? I, I think it's a fascinating question, and I'm going to attempt to provide you know whatever answer I'm able to provide, given what I think I know. But I do hope that we get a chance to revisit this when we hopefully at some point do an episode on live performances of The Wall. What I think Roger is talking about is, and and we've sort of mentioned this in passing before, in 2010 is the last time that I'm aware that he staged a full production of The Wall. That video 
is available on YouTube. I have watched maybe the first quarter of it. I haven't watched the whole thing. And I can tell you that the staging is entirely different. Um, and, and so having not watched it all the way through, I, I can't, you know, I, I can't say for a certainty that, that he's emphasizing that. But, you know, what you said suddenly made the drastic change in visuals for that, that performance make a whole lot more sense to me. And also tying in when I saw him in 2017, um, you know, and again, I wasn't necessarily aware of all this sort of extra context, but there, there is a very, very strong political um, content to, to Roger's um, performance and his stage show at this point. Now, the other thing, and again, we haven't talked about it, and we won't talk about it necessarily in these two episodes because you know we're we're going to stick to the the studio album for right now but there there are a couple of extra pieces uh you know there's there's um when the tigers broke free that ultimately wound up not being on the album and it was not in the original stage production i don't know if it was in rogers 2010 um but that brings in some of the war aspect which is very easy to um, to maybe politicize, if that's the right word. Additionally, what we have now, or what Roger has at his disposal now, that he didn't have in 1980, is the added perspective of the final cut. The final cut is very, very politicized. And I believe I mentioned it in our last episode. In my opinion, the I always assumed those two were very, very closely related. Um, but in in fact, um, you know, the final cut I think applies very specifically to the experience of those in the UK in the '80s and why things weren't quite the way they wanted it to be. But I think musically, those two things are very close together. And I would be curious now to go back and look at and watch the whole episode and see if there's any sort of expansion of the core set of music to maybe include some of this. I, I don't know. I'm just talking off the top of my head right now. But I, I do think it's very interesting. And and I do think you're absolutely right to to describe it as, you know, the 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 politics are what is front and center and important to Roger today, as opposed to when he wrote this back in 1978, he apparently was grappling with, you know, the experience in the Montreal uh, Olympic Stadium. So I, I think that'll be very interesting to see. Great. Yeah, I, I know that, you know, a lot of that is going to be in, in another episode, but there's, um, I guess, for a, a, a warning, when, when we get to that, I'm going to dive a little bit back into <laughs> the, the, the album because yeah. I'm going to be like, wait a minute, there's all this stuff in the <laughs> beginning of the album. And so it, uh, there's, you know, there, there's definitely some, some crossover, as I mentioned in the last episode. Yeah, it, so I just wanted to bring that up. But okay, it, great. You know, it's the sort of the evolution of the production, maybe. You know, like in Les Miserables, you know, at the beginning where, you know, they actually they're literally on a chain game. But then, you know, 30 years later, they change it and they're actually on a boat. 
So it, well, they're it's, not on uh, a boat; yeah. they're pulling a boat in. You still haven't watched the movie, have you? I have not watched the movie. You need to watch no. the movie because we need to talk about that too. Okay, all right. I I, I will say this though is that, uh, you know, I, you know, I I agree with Joe uh, as 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 much to the degree that this is what he was saying. I, I think that Roger Waters just is a more political outward person and wants to politicize things and wants wants to be able to utilize that his stage on that on that level for me the wall is about isolation and alienation it, but it it i think more importantly it's about the external bullying and belittling and the personal demeaning that goes on degradation that goes on to an individual to create a self-loathing which is ultimately unfolds in in sort of this obsessive rumination of memories and fantasies and i think that all of the the imagery and everything that's happening in the wall lends itself in in that obsessive rumination perspective to take it in a hundred different places. And I, and I think Roger Waters just takes advantage of that aspect of it to take it to places where he wants to go and the hell he should. I mean, he's been doing it since 1980. He should be <laughs> able to um, take it to whatever direction he wants to. Yeah. And, and like I said, I'll be very curious now to watch that whole, that whole performance, but you know, it, it does it, does it in some way speak to the power of this music that it can be adapted, maybe, and we'll see how successfully, to to meet those ends? Hmm. Or does it just feed into his original idea that, you know, a large stadium rock concert is really very quite similar to a fascist rally? I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. Excellent. So, any other sort of... Uh, lore tidbits before we get into the music itself then <laughs> I, I, actually, I actually don't have any any additional lore tidbits i think i uh i exhausted myself last week <laughs> uh, I, I might oh. have some in relation to the songs that we'll talk about but none that are yeah, sort we'll, of uh, we'll, intertw we'll intertwine them into the into the actual context of the song of yes. the album yes so I, I'm, I'm going to take a, a moment, though. I don't have any lore, but a question, an overarching question popped into my mind today. And I don't know that it needs to be answered right now, but I would like to put it on the table for you gentlemen to consider as we go through this. Okay. We spoke in our preamble episode last week about the, the situation involving Richard Wright the fact that Richard um, didn't seem to be as musically involved in the wall, either by his own choice or, you know, by design, whatever the case may be, and and how that was in some way a a sad thing. And so, in this extra week, as I've the couple of times I've been able to go back through and listen to the wall in its entirety, I have paid specific attention to where Richard does show up and where Richard mm. doesn't show up. And it is decidedly different. So the question that popped into my head as I was doing this was, is Richard Wright, you know, in, in his special sauce way, being not present here 
a bad thing or does it ultimately serve this type of music? Because it seems to me that, you know, Roger has started to pull very different emotional levels, levers here. And I think if you had some sort of, you know, and, and David drives a lot of that. And I'm, I'm wondering, I was just thinking, and I'm, I'm not sold on this idea. If you had some sort of, you know, fantastically wonderful, jazzy, intricate keyboard part, would that negate some of this raw emotional impact that Roger seems to be imparting on you? So, Joe, I, I just I'll say this because I, I think this will probably come up as we as we go through. So we were talking last week and I went back to check my um, my brand new Pink Floyd remastered 120 gram delicious vinyl album that that I've been listening to this on. I went back to check the gatefold and sure enough, on my gatefold, there is there's no mention uh, Richard Wright. There's there's no mention of Nick Mason. There's really no mention of Pink Floyd as a band on the gatefold. It simply says produced by in alphabetical order, and it talks uh, Bob Ezrin, David Gilmour, Roger Waters. It mentions that Roger Waters wrote all the lyrics, and it lists the backing vocalists and some of the instrumentalists. But there's really no part of my gatefold that says Pink Floyd is and and listing out the band. And it, as you know, after our conversation and after, you know, kind of looking through the wikis and looking at so many people who worked on this record, as we talked about and will continue to talk about, it just occurred to me that. You know, this one, this album was a bit different. Like it's Pink Floyd's The Wall. It is a massive vision that Roger Waters had. And he amassed a small army of people to bring that vision to life. To your point, if Richard Wright wasn't 100%, you know, feeling the vibe or wasn't really, it, it didn't seem to matter because the, the it, this project seemed to be bigger than I, I dare say it was bigger even than Roger. Like, yes, he was the guy that was steering the ship, but from an artistic perspective, you know, it seemed like everyone was contributing to, to, to that. And if, and if Richard didn't, so I, I would say to your, to your answer your question, yeah, it probably was good that he is in this as much as he is, or as much as he isn't, because I think it contributes all of that and you know roger it was a it was a group vision or it was roger's vision that was you know more about the music than anyone else until roger put the ultimatum out there that that said you know kick kick him out of the band or i'll, I'll take the wall yeah can you imagine uh, for for contrasting purposes again the 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 liner notes gatefold whatever you want to call it in the cd version i have very clearly has the band listing with all four members in in with all of the other credits. So when is that? When is that? Um, when what? When did you pick that up? I wonder. I wonder if that happened after like all the lawsuits and everything like that. It says the only copyright information on here is 1979. Um, okay. So I, it doesn't look like it's a reissue. 
But is it a CD that you got there? Yes, it's a CD. Okay, so I mean, it's got to be re- remastered at some point in time for the CDs. Yeah, I, so, you know, again, I mean, my, my vinyl's brand new, but I, I think it was, you know, the idea was that it was, you know, the, uh, the remake of the original, so. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but I'm going to guess, Paul, that the reason that your vinyl is so different, remember we talked about before in the 1987 settlement, David got the name and Roger got the wall. Yes, so my guess is Roger now has the ability to excise everyone's information from that oh. to whatever extent he feels is appropriate. So you think it's the opposite? Yeah. It's it's the opposite. Okay. Interesting. That would be unfortunate if he took their names out because of that. Especially, I mean, why, why would he take Nick Mason's name out? Well, Paul, you said he took them all out. There's no mention of the band. Yeah, there's. I mean, the only reason David Gilmore and Roger Waters is mentioned is because they produced the album with Bob Ezrin. And and that's that's a legal distinction as well. Yep, exactly. So, well, I mean, Joe, getting back to your um, original point, I mean, that sort of goes back in part to uh, I brought up last week that it'd be interesting to find out. And that's something I forgot to do this week. Maybe I'll, I'll do it for next week. <laughs> uh, it'd be interesting to find out what track exactly had Richard Wright and which track had Bob Ezrin, because I know Bob has, as you know, he, he did a lot of keyboard stuff on the album as well. Uh, you know, the more I listen to it and knowing the backstory of course, every time a, a keyboard or piano comes in, I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, there we go, there we go, go, <laughs> go, go, Richard. Um, but then you don't really know if it's, if it's uh, Richard Wright or Bob. So, but, I mean, there is, I mean, it is a bit, it, it is understated. Yeah, and it, is it is a lot subtle, uh, but is, uh, there's actually a lot on there. I mean, you know, not as much as, say, you know, Dark Side of the Moon, but, I mean, there actually is a lot of uh, keyboards and piano on here. Mm-hmm. Well, it's also fascinating, too, because, you know, you could, you, could, you could play, you know, where in the world is Richard Wright on the wall? Um, because I don't know that I could make the distinguish. I don't know if I could distinguish which because I I would have I would have told you at this very moment. Well, obviously, it's Richard Wright playing on in in the flesh and in the flesh, right. but it certainly it certainly is not as as according to the wikis, uh, the organ in that in that was played by Fred Mandel. Really? Yeah. Interesting. So that's a great segue into in the flesh. And I've already forgotten. That's, ah, yes. The first one is the question mark, in the flesh. Yeah. Got to get our enunciation down properly. So, in, in the flesh, you know, this really totally sets the stage. Talk about, you know, opening a, a powerhouse. Um, it's, my notes here say that it's appropriately dramatic. Nick Mason's almost spicy in this. I mean, relative to Nick Mason, which struck me as kind of... He, entertaining when i stopped to think about it spicy he is spicy you know i mean he's he's not 
he's not flailing around. In fact, it was funny. One night I was I was out taking a walk and I was listening to Gilmore's first solo record, which obviously has a a drummer other than Nick Mason. And at one point I was like, this dude's wearing me out. Um, mm. You know, he was, and, and it wasn't, you know, obviously I have no problem with busy drummers, but he kept kind of doing the same thing over and over again. And it made me really appreciate the reserved beauty that can be Nick Mason. You know, right out of the gate, he kind of, he, he sets the table for us. It grabs your attention. It's, it's like I said, it's very dramatic. You, you, you know, immediately you get that just, you know, delicious guitar sound that, that Gilmore's going to have throughout this entire record, which is just, oh, it's just beautiful. And, um, and, and I, you know, ultimately this is going to come back and I'll be interested when we talk about In the Flesh on this, on the second disc, which is basically almost a straight up reprise of this with some differences. Um, but it, it, it's it's virtually the same piece of music again, and, and sometimes I love that, and sometimes I hate it. But when you first put it on, it's like, oh, I'm in the wall. Fantastic. Take me away. Mm. Yes. I will say I don't get the dive bomber. Other than it's it's a very dramatic way to go from the bombast of the opening into, um, you know, poof, the, the sort of the the quiet birth moment, if you will. Well, uh, I mean, for me, I think it just introduces the the part of the backdrop of you know that there's there's backdrop of of his, his losing his father in the war, and I think that that just uh, introduces that sort of element to uh, to all of it. I mean, for 1979, it fucking sounds ridiculous <laughs> when that thing comes in. When that bomber comes in and cra it's just like I, I'm, I'm amazed. I was amazed to buy it tonight, just while cooking dinner, <laughs> when it happened. Uh, uh, it sounds so so good. But but I I I look at it as it's, it's just sort of a nice introduction into um, um, some of that uh, imagery that we're gonna hear. So uh, I, I want to take a quick step back. I don't know if this is the right time to bring this up. It may be better saved for the end of, of our discussion of the wall. I've often heard and wondered at the very, very end of the wall uh, as the, re the reprise of, of um, whatever that song is that, that happens at the end and starts the, and starts the beginning. Just before the music stops, there's a voice at mm -hmm. the end. And I've always been cognizant of the voice at the end, but literally only cared enough to figure out what it was until last week, which, of course, I could only do by searching on the Internet because I could not figure out what the heck was happening. So what I learned is that I, mean, I learned what it says, but I also learned that there is a snippet of voice at the very beginning of of the of the album which i have yet to discern in any of my listening so i don't know if this is the right time to bring it up have you guys ever heard the voice at the beginning of of the wall i don't know that i have heard the one at the beginning but now i'm gonna have to go look for it so all right so i'm just gonna throw it out there let's not talk about it now I'll just throw it out there that apparently there is a phrase there is a phrase stated part of that phrase is at the beginning of the wall part of it is at the end 
that that's interesting. I actually have that written down somewhere because I did I did read um, something about that, Paul. But uh, so we'll actually get back to that because I don't have it in front of me anyway. But uh, I, I want to just really quickly talk about the bookend, the um, in the flesh uh, bookend, the very beginning, and then outside of the wall, we we get into the sort of fuller version of the little snippet that we hear in the beginning. I don't know if this is more of a Roger Waters thing, or this is a sort of a Pink Floyd thing or, or David Gilmore. I'm going to guess that this doing bookends is more of a Roger Waters thing, because I know we have almost every album in this period has a bookend. We have the, um, heartbeats in dark side the beginning and the end mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh we have uh wish you were here that begins and ends with the um shine on you crazy diamond uh animals begins and ends with pigs on the wing and the final cuts two sons and the sunset uh, fades out on the same road noise and, and road chatter that introduces the the post-war dream and so there's a lot of this that happens in Pink Floyd music, I was like cinematically when when something bookends, and I mean I'm, I'm a, I just it's it's just nice um, stylistic thing to do. But I my only point of this is that I didn't notice this until just recently that there was an actual bookend to this, um, even though it's sort of obvious. Uh, I mean, even the little snippet of in the the flesh that it, it comes up in when it's sort of like, you know, coming from a little transistor radio, for some reason, I, I didn't put two and two together that that was the, the bulk of, of the outside of the wall. And, um, it's, it's, um, uh, interesting that it's an interesting choice to, to do. And, uh, I, I, I found it interesting. I, I think if Ken were here, he would point out the fact that, um, you know, Roger and Nick were the, the architectural students and, and Roger does seem in very interested in form and, and, you know, Tom, when you, when you spell it out that way, yeah, he does seem to sort of thrive on symmetry to a certain degree. So it, it, it does make a lot of sense. Very cool. Yeah. And the, the, it, it, it plays into a couple of things. We get to that later. Um, in the flesh though, is uh, like you said, Joe. It's bombastic, and I, I'm gonna try this. I'm sorry. Since Ken's not here, I'm gonna feel. I'm gonna feel like it's okay for me to play guitar <laughs> on this episode. But um, in the flesh, it's just this great. Right. But there is this really. I feel like it's subtle. Like I think it's a very subtle harmony in the mix. But there's this this harmony, which is basically like, it's it's the um, it's the major third, but it's played it's like an eleventh, and it goes through the whole the whole thing. Whoops. But because the guitars are just this huge, giant, like massive rock show. It has like this overtone sort of feel, just like 
he- like almost like heavy me- like for Pink Floyd it's like heavy metal and and rock and I freaking love it and anytime I hear like any you know anybody noodling or a live version I'm like doesn't sound right because it doesn't have that that second part in it and that just blows me away that I mean that shit that just blows me away and it's mixed perfectly with the keyboards you know you stop me anytime you want the <laughs> you know the the lyrical introduction to this like if you think about the inspiration behind how this started and the fact that we're going to we're going to go on this rambling like internal mental psychedelic journey and we start at a rock show where your protagonist is 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 basically throwing it right into the audience's face you know tell me of something eluding you sunshine is this not what you expected to see if you want to find out what's behind these cold eyes you'll just have to claw your way through this disguise and then that's what the whole rest of the album is is going deeper than the disguise right oh that line is fantastic i'm glad you actually read that and and even before there's even in the very beginning and lyrically the lines to feel the warm thrill of confusion that space cadet glow i don't know why that line gets me but i absolutely love it yes and i've always thought that was a different line so i'm not going to tell you what i thought it was because (laughs) so so we have the uh the the bomber come in and again sort of reset the stage because you know we have to go back to the beginning we can't start, I mean, we can start in the middle, but we have to go back to the beginning. And even though, and, and again, I, I, I spoke in sort of the preamble here about Roger pulling emotional levers and the dynamics throughout mm. this piece as a whole continue to amaze me. So you start out way up here with, as you said, Paul, you know, just the, uh, the arena rock, massive guitars and everything else. And and a, a and and as I'm sitting here talking about it, it actually becomes almost brilliant. That the sound of a of a falling bomber actually brings everything physically down. Mm. Boom to the the baby cry, and we have the we have the the soothing introduction or the introduction of of Gilmore's soothing mother voice, right? And so again, here throughout this entire piece, Roger and David are going to vocally, you know, balance each other out. And, and you know, so you have this sort of gentle intro, but by the time the song is done and Roger is singing now, um, mm. don't be surprised when a crack in the ice appears under your feet. You slip out of your depth and out of your mind with your fear flowing out behind you as you claw the thin ice, that is as sinister a <laughs> as a, a delivery as you're ever going to get. And then yes. David comes in and just so you just game on again. And so that small, very gentle respite of you know infancy or childhood or whatever, it's so short before you get right back into the shit. It's amazing. Ah, oh, yes, it is. One hour down, and we got. One song down. We got there it two. is. We got two, man. Yeah. We did two songs, so we can move think, this along because it's about four four minutes, I think. 
so everything that you said, Joe, and the sinister nature of of, of Roger's delivery, the th it's funny how much time in my life I've spent talking to people about what the wall could be about, right? Like, you know, people are like, oh, it's about like, you know, psychedelic trip and it's about all this different stuff. And, oh, and, you know, and Roger Waters hated the Jews and all this stuff. And that's why, you know, if you just take it for what it is, it's it's just perfect. I love like the, the I love this is so funny the, the, I'm going to do exactly what you just did Joe the <laughs> line the line before what you said when he says if you should go skating on the thin ice of modern life dragging behind you the silent reproach of a million tear-stained eyes and and to me like every time I've heard Roger Waters describe the incident in Montreal where he spit on the on the audience person even in the kind of, in, even in the interview where I think, I, you know, I heard him joke around and, you know, talk about how he got the guy too, right? There, there always seemed to be uh, more than just a tinge of regret in, in Roger's relaying of that story, right? Mm -hmm. The idea that he wasn't necessarily proud. It wasn't his proudest moment. He wasn't necessarily happy with the way he handled himself in that. And, and perhaps that's exactly why he, he went on to, to create this. But that line to me, dragging behind you the silent reproach of a million tear-stained eyes, is like is like that. Like you leave t tour, you return to life, and you're basically just carrying the weight of the millions of people that you just performed for, with the feeling of like, yeah, you're just you're nothing to them, and um, I just I love that. I love it. There we Kenny go. Kenny G in the house. Yeah. Kenny G. What's up, dude? Well, what you doing? <laughs> <laughs> We're just about to start talking about the wall, Ken. <laughs> <laughs> we just gushed over the first two tracks, and we're about to move into another Brick in the Wall Part 1. I mentioned a few moments ago just the, the beautiful guitar tone that, that David has throughout this. And that's a bit of a misnomer because it's not just one. He has about a dozen. And, <laughs> and, and every one of them is creamy and delicious and wonderful and makes me feel happy in special places. So, um, you know, and, and this is, this is one of those. And, and I think I mentioned last time, you know, I, I, I'm personally perhaps unreasonably fixated on the the progression of another brick in the wall there it's it's in three parts the three parts are related but they're distinctly different and i love the the way that it morphs every time it comes back up depending on on what part of his life he's he's talking about so hmm. you know i i dig it i dig it a lot two two quick things i love how thin ice ends with you know another big rock and roll e chord and then as it fades out the the d ostinato is coming in to start this whole this whole process i just fucking love it and then we, we talked a little bit um last week i don't know if ken's guitar performances I, I guess it will go in this in this version of of the podcast rather than the last time but we we talked about the solo being recorded direct into the board. So they, they originally didn't record the guitar solo with an amp. But I really wonder if that 
the the this entire song was recorded direct because there there is the there's and you know I don't I don't know Tom or, and and can what you think about you know as as a recording thing but like there is this magical um, dichotomy of all of these this delay going on with a, a like a source tone that has nothing no reverb no barely any effects like it's it is like a plugged in guitar and that that dichotomy of that sound is so rich it's 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 it i mean it's it's literally if if a sound can be iconic it, it is mm-hmm. it's interesting that you you say the word rich because i always thought that the sound from another brick on the wall all one two three and actually there are other parts that uh, incorporate other songs that have little snippets of it but the, I always thought of that guitar as glue to the whole of of the whole thing of the wall. Mm. So the guitar sound is actually glue, and you brought up it being rich. So we have rich glue. <laughs> 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 so that's all I got. <laughs> I think we were blessed with. Uh... Never having all three on the radio, but with the classic rock stations that we grew up with, I recall hearing parts one and two simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And that was a pure joy. And that, that probably compelled us to play those two parts together when we had the opportunity to, to, to play it. There, there is tremendous energy in part three. I don't know why we never threw that into the mix. That would have been fun. Mm. But 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 I was always partial to hearing the entire one and two, and, and and when a pop radio station violated that and just played part two, it wasn't cool. <laughs> so here's here's just a question for you guys because you know we're talking through this, and you know we're, we're, we've already mentioned a couple of of really like detailed things. I'm sure that will continue. We've asked some broad questions. Uh, you know, we've been listening to this record for o- almost 40 years. And, and I, I'm curious because, I, you know, you're talking about that, Ken. And I think one of the wondrous things for me about when I first actually, when I finally listened to The Wall was like like hearing another Brick in the Wall part one and being like, oh. And then all of a sudden, like, and then it turns into the we don't need no and i was like oh wow this is all this is like all glued together this is amazing like it was mm-hmm. like it was sort of a discovery cuz i'd only heard you know the stuff on the radio and then um and then as i explored it so so you know i know we've talked about albums taking many many years to to connect with people and perhaps the wall is an exception maybe because it's it's just so phenomenally done uh, you don't necessarily need 20 years to kind of dig through and figure it out. But musically, like there are so many different pieces that were discovery. Like I spent a lot of time listening to Mother and Goodbye Blue Sky and nothing really else. I spent a lot of time listening to Empty Spaces and Young Lust and nothing really else, right? And then, uh, but there was a really that that time of discovery when it was like, wow, like <laughs> that's all connected. That's so freaking cool, you know? And it's interesting how, and I guess every quote-unquote concept album does this, right? There are some parts that are musically strung together seamlessly, 
and then there are those those hard breaks and and you know I, I I think this album handles those two different connectivities extraordinarily well you know and, and again we have to give huge credit to Roger for landing this vision because again by all accounts this was his vision and he was able to to take all these pieces and give us the the brilliant um, the brilliant piece we have here absolutely and so another brick in the wall part one rolls seamlessly into the happiest days of our lives and and you know we've uh, we i've been i've been giving pink floyd shit um you know for <laughs> some of their some of their sound design sketchbook ideas and, and and whatnot and the fact that they they never stopped doing it um but i, I mean it it really pays off in this album, because even those things that don't necessarily make a whole lot of sense to me, explain to me exactly why the schoolmaster is in a helicopter. Is it a metaphor? Is Did they just like the helicopter sound? Why the hell the helicopter? Huh. Um, but it's, it's extraordinarily well Agreed. done, even though it doesn't make any fucking sense. It never really occurred to me that the instructor was inside the helicopter before, until just now. I didn't. I didn't really think that. Well, I mean, you know, you, I thought it was. I thought it was just, you know, musical and, and soundscaping imagery and metaphors. See, like I think it's the way I always interpreted it was, um, you know, the way it, it's it's very accusatory. You, yes, you stand still, laddie. It's like, and with the helicopter sound, it's like someone up above seeing someone doing something they shouldn't be. I, I mean, first of all, I'll openly say that I don't even know how many years it's been since I even realized that that part of this was called the happiest days of <coughs> I'm sorry, happiest days of our lives. But the way it's kind of yeah. divided up is like it's kind of like about, you know, daddy's gone across the ocean. Daddy, what you leave behind for me? Lots of guitar stuff. And and, you know, the. His his trip across the ocean was to fight a war, right? And and that the helicopter, to me, is, to me sounds like a military device representing, you know, that, you know, his father being in in battle, if you will. What and like again for me, like to me, this this is a this is like an obsessive rumination, right? This whole passage is about him thinking about his youth and how he's been alienated you know and you know lost his father and he's been demeaned and de and degraded by his teachers and to me the the helicopter is just sort of the connective tissue that sort of bridges the you know this thing about his his dad going away and then now i'm going to talk about the teachers fucking me up and um and 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 it just kind of happens yeah i don't know tom it sounds like you might be clear well, the good news is I'm clear, but the bad news is Paul took the words right out of my mouth. Oh, I stole thunder. <laughs> but Paul, Paul, you said it much better than I could uh, that I ever could have. Yeah, I mean, there's a common denominator of sounds from war bring him back to um, telling us about the loss of his father, and that's just another. Uh, it's it's more glue, if you will, more glue for the wall, and. Uh, 
that, that's basically what I was going to say. As, but I'm not going to repeat. As, as an <laughs> amateur historian, or at least a World War II buff to some degree, I will take exception to that in mentioning that helicopters were not in use uh, militarily if they even existed in World War II. So it would be mm. an incongruous use of, of, uh, of a sound that um, for those of us in post-Korean or um, Vietnam War world um, very much um, associate with, with military. It could very well be, um, but it, it, whatever the case may be, it, it does certainly segue from, from the first part, which is presumably the alienation brought about by the loss of his father into the, you know, now infamous um, English school system stories that we've, we've all heard. Genesis had similar stories, um, although they didn't make it into quite the, the same kind of song. Mm. So Joe, I'll just say that a quick, a quick doodle in the Google has uh, alerted me to that while uh, the use of helicopters did not really catch on until, you know, later, like you said, they were in their infancy during, during the early forties of okay. World War II. And it's possible, although I don't know, if we have any documentation, it's possible that if someone was going to ship off, they could have traveled at least in some part of their journey by helicopter. I don't know. I, I don't know either. But but I think it's I think I think it's a it's a it's a it's a, it's a fair call out. Um, but boy, does that helicopter sound good? <laughs> in the, uh, yeah, I mean, like I said, I don't get it, but it sounds spectacular. So, um, so they, they were you were the missing piece of. Clearly, even though there was like at least a hundred people involved in the production of the wall, they didn't have a World War II historian, someone to say, hey, you know, Bob, I should dial back that helicopter. That's but, incongruous. <laughs> but just looking at this, right? Because this is this is a, a very short, a very linear song. It's designed to get from Another Brick in the Wall, Part 1, into Another Brick in the Wall, Part 2, so yep. that we can have our, our single. It, it's got three three verses, but man, the distance he covers in, in those three verses is mm. freaking amazing. So yes. it introduces the teachers, and, and the way that the teachers preyed upon the children, and then it flips everything around, and the way he delivers that last that last mm. verse, but in the town it was well known when they got home at night, their fat and psychopathic wives would thrash them within inches of their lives. And I mean, say what you want to, you know, if if you want to have fun talking about, you know, they couldn't get the the uh, the vocal right for have a cigar or whatever. Water brings it on this. Yes, Ken. Mm. Oh, sorry. Uh, I'm going to have to bring in uh, my typical snowflake commentary here. But <laughs> in today's world, <laughs> we no longer shame for weight or mental health. So he's got two puppies right in there in, in one shot. It's just like a, a, a sandwich, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're really just scratching the surface at you know with fat and psychopathic. 
Well, and, and, and you know, you're, you make a very, very valid point, Ken, and, and those are certainly not the words that we would probably use today, although maybe some musicians would. But what it does convey, certainly in the language of the time, is it, it, exp it attempts to explain why these teachers were getting their jollies on torturing these kids because they in turn were tortured at home. And of course, this torturing of the kids is going to pay forward in, in, in manifesting these, these behaviors in pink ultimately. So it's this vicious feedback loop. And, you know, you, and this isn't the first time that Roger is going to use, you know, very questionable words in this piece. Next episode, we're going to get into this an awful lot and right up in our face. And it may very well be that, and I suspect, you know, that it probably is very deliberate using that type of language as a way to describe the visceral feelings that are, are being communicated here. The social justice warrior in me is appeased by your analytical retort. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. The, the, the thing that the thing that the two things that kind of always keep coming to my mind as I've been listening is, is how identifiable the themes of this record are to the average person. Right. I think we, We've all experienced isolation to some degree. We've all we've all experienced alienation to some degree. We've all been demeaned towards. We've all been belittled, and we've all been angry at those who do it. And we've we've certainly taken one thing that's coming at us and displaced it on other people, uh, purposely, accidentally. However, and and I and you know you you said it, Joe. It, it's such a brilliant way to illustrate that. And in, in, in while you're examining the damage of one, you can comment upon the, the damage and the source of that damage as another, because this is what we're really talking about. We're talking about the things that are causing his alienation, that causing him to become the self-loathing, miserable bastard that he is. And, and he's ruminating upon the things that made him like that. And while he's doing that, he's commenting on, yeah, the same thing happened to the guy who's doing it to me. It's brilliant. Yeah. Hey, Ken. Hey. This is what I think of your political correctness. <laughs> <laughs> For those Friends of you listening labor, Tom has revealed the album cover from Roger Waters' famous album, the pros and cons of hitchhiking. You, you can see another one of those in the pre-show. <laughs> and, and this, of course, you know, you have then the, the big dramatic drum seg into another brick in the wall part two, which is, you know, one again, for, for folks of our age, this was one of the cornerstones of rock radio when we were growing up. Uh, we may not have known much about Pink Floyd, but everybody freaking knew this song. Yeah. Um, and to the point, I, I don't even know what to uh, what to really say about it. Although um, I did, um, you know, I, I I took all of five minutes to teach myself most of the bass line uh, when I got my five string because 
I don't have to do a drop D. I can just play it on the B. It's great. Fantastic. Oh, <laughs> very nice. Um, a couple of things on this one for me. I think that the mega bass sound, this is one of the best bass sounds ever. Yes, thank I mean, you. This is mm. a bass sound, and it's well done. And I think it brings out Waters' anger in the subject matter. It really helps um, really dig into the, the anger that he feels. But I want to take a second, lighten things up a minute, uh, just lighten things up a little bit. I just want to say that I love fucking 70s disco. <laughs> and yeah. there is a big disco presence in this song, and it's done very well. I mean, uh, I I have had this sort of like closet love for seventies disco my whole life. I've always Saturday Night Fever is you know one of my favorite albums. I love when great musicians get together and play songs from that era with those with those sounds and. To have Pink Floyd, of all people, playing something like this that you can dance to. I mean, um, now I know when you think of the wall, you don't think of dancing, okay? But I have to say, William Walton and I spent many, many hours sneaking into Catholic school dances. Um, like, you know, in, in when, when, we, when we were like 14, 15 years wow. old and the Catholic Guys, school girls will dance to this song, like no one's business. And if you want to do see, that, <laughs> <laughs> if you want to no. see people go off, um, go to a, a Catholic school dance in the eighties. Um, and when they're, when they're dancing to another brick in the wall part two and, um, I know. I'm sure at the time they were they didn't bring up the the term disco or anything. They were just making a song that they thought fit, and it does. And I didn't really even put this together that it was really disco until later in life. But I I, I love the pulse of this. It it's um, aside from being very a, a commercial song that they that they really needed to sort of bring people into this as a as an entity i mean it's 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 a really um great piece to really get people involved and they use um the beat really well um to get people involved but to also show the anger again we go back to the bass to really i mean and and roger waters is is is, is going off here and there's there's a pulse that goes on, and then when the pulse is broken later, it's even has even more of an impact. Mm. And so, what what better way to do this? I mean, this was right on, right in the verge of the '70s disco. I mean, to to do something like that, and I mean, and this isn't the only band that did anything like this. I mean, Queen Queen did it back in the day. Another one bites the dust. Kiss did uh, it. Another, Kiss did it. Uh, so I, I was gonna bring I was gonna bring up that I think the two greatest examples is what you just said, another one bites the dust and kiss. And I know for a fact that I was made for loving you came out in 1979. So there you go. <laughs> it is a contemporary, and and I think if you want to hear the difference between it being done poorly, and and do, having it done 
very well. You, you, you're you right on the money, Tom. It, it, this is the best that it, this is as good as it ever got of infusing that disco piece to it. Yeah. Love it. Yep. Well, yeah. Bob Ezrin, right, Joe? I mean, you're down, you're deep in the lore. He he was begging these guys to get funky. <laughs> and and Roger wanted this to be a very short song. I mean, it 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 it, it was a a stretch when they sent the tapes back to the UK to get the kids on tape. Right. Yeah. And and it was only with some very creative edits that they that they convinced Roger this was the way to go. Right. Yeah, that that, that, that is an interesting story about, um, you know, you know, again, it talks to, they, they've got two studios going in France. They're calling back to the folks at Britannia Row, having them bring um, school children in to record them at Britannia Row in addition to all of the other sound effecty type stuff and then shipping it over to France. I mean, it's, just, it's amazing. Uh, that brings up an interesting point, right? We talked uh, on the last couple episodes on animals about the peculiar sound that the band achieved in Britannia Row. You know, what would have happened if they had recorded the wall at Britannia Row? I, it may not be the the pristine masterpiece we have today. It would be a, a messy, sloppy, dark bunch of wallamoles. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. I just I just typed in the link for I was made for loving you into the show notes and the heading was bad disco and and as I typed it I thought what would Mark Anthony K say if I if I put this in we'll, we'll have, have to ask, ask him. him we'll have to ask him <laughs> and of course mm. it gives you know I I, I absolutely love the uh, the schoolmaster in this um I just that oh, accent yeah. just kills me yeah in a previous episode for metal we 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 were impressed with the ostinato abilities of pink floyd to mm -hmm. have a very simple phrase that just kept us in the uh in the groove of the song um <laughs> so in um another brick in the wall parts one part two and, and part three which i love so much um there is a d note which, which graces us with its beautiful presence over and over and again, sometimes picked, sometimes coming to us through the delay effect. And this wonderful, this wonderful key is D Dorian, meaning that you would, you would normally go D, E, F, G, A, and then B flat for a minor scale. But no, you go to the, the B note and then to the C note. And then you've finished your scale at the D note. So it's it's the quintessential Dorian blues scale. It's just in its it's in its simple beauty. It's stark beauty. And and we just love D pentatonic in the guitar. I mean guitar's lowest note is E, and then the next string is an A, but that's that third string is that D string that we love so much, particularly in Pink Floyd. And when we think about, you know, the wall, we just love that D. And this D Dorian solo is absolutely classic. I mean, so many guitar players know this. I think there's a registry. There are probably 3,000 guitarists across this country who can play this in the world who can play this perfectly and they're in the registry. I'm not in the registry, but, but <laughs> maybe by, by the good graces of the Palaver, I shall audition. So, so I just, I just love 
what he does here. And when I was a kid, Paul, when you and I and Tom, when you jammed all these Pink Floyd songs with us, I know I wasn't doing all the bends. So as an adult, I will try to outdo my childish self and throw in more bends here. So that, 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 that first lick of the... Uh, oh my God. That first stuff, they're, they're like, you know, two bends. From, from the very beginning, he, he's, he's, he's just bending anything he possibly can. And then this is beautiful. So I, I'm exaggerating the bends, but they're absolutely gorgeous. And if you're a guitar player, you know that when you're talking 10th fret through the 13th fret, that's the region that bends the easiest. Why? Because it's halfway. You know what I mean? If I try to bend on the first fret, I'm going to hurt my fingers. And, you know, even high up on the neck, sometimes those bends really take a lot of gusto. But when you're halfway right in the middle of the neck, the laws of physics tell you you can bend the hell out of anything you want. It's beautiful, right? And what I didn't know as a kid is that Gilmore is playing four notes in this one spot you've got your your uh, c to a d but he also manages manages to get c d e and f it's amazing mm. so so i'm gonna scream when that all happens <laughs> Right there, three notes. Classic, classic, right here, Paul, you know it. Oh, God, yeah. that's beautiful. And right here. And then it goes right back to that C note on the 13th fret. This is beautiful. That's the F. To a D. And we all know this. I used to play this all sorts of ways. I never played it with the bend, though. Beautiful. And then this. I love this little turnaround here at the top. That's like the slowest bend in the Gilmore catalog. He's like, it, 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 it's, it's actually really hard to learn and play. I'm kind of confident with it now, but it's like an F almost to a G, not really to a G. It just kind of sits there. And then that's that C again, the C to the D to the E. You're getting, you're getting all sorts of notes and you're keeping your finger in one spot. Now, Taking it up high. Oh, love it. That, that's, it's one of the hardest things for me. It's easy to do the slow bends, but he starts to whip out some of these fast bends. And then beautiful right here. It, it's like uh, a B flat to a C. No, that's not good enough. We can do better. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. 
what the hell is that? That is so beautiful because we already had this. How are you going to outdo that classic riff? Well, he uses some of the same shapes, but but you know, basically this whole thing is is it is is a G to an F, or you know, the. And this is the, the key you're in. And he just loves this. And like I said, you really need that. Because this chord is the definition of the Dorian mode. I mean, because like, that's the root. That's the fourth. And then back to the root. I mean, it's just, just beautiful. So anytime that he can squeak in that gorgeous B natural you're, you're, you're talking you know very Dorian there and 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 and, and, and you know a lot of I'm, I'm gonna quote Jakey e. Lee right here um, from Bark of the Moon nice okay that's one all sorts of guitar players whip out that um that 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 lick and Paul, do you call that the David Gilmore lick from time to time? Uh, I refer to the David Gilmore lick as the um, the C to the F. So oh, 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 okay. yeah, yeah, cool, cool, cool. Okay. okay, but that that one is also very very David Gilmore. You're right. I mean, yeah, yeah I mean, it, it's all over rock and roll. I mean, I mean, I mean, Eddie Van Halen has a version of it and beat it, and Billy Gibbons does it, and everybody does it, and you got to have the yeah. Right, it's 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 everywhere. But but the gorgeous thing about what's happening in the wall is 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 the fact that you're taking that D minor chord and you're throwing in the G, right? And he wants to do that again, but he can't do the same damn thing. So he goes, "That's the second version of it. Isn't that amazing?" <laughs> and then and then all he has to do at that point is that end is just so stark it is you, yeah 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 so there you have it kids badass kenny g i like the uh, i like the telly this nice. is a nice addition excellent and and that sort of that that takes us into mother now mother is Obviously, this is one of those sort of hard segues, right? Um, because Mother sort of comes out of, of almost nowhere. You guys can speak to the, the music of Mother. Obviously, you're, you guys performed it back in the day. You performed it a lot. You performed Mother probably you know, longer than any of the other covers that you, you probably did in the, in the life of Surface Tension. But really? For, I think so. It, wow. it, it seemed to be there for a very, very long time. Once it was like in, it. it never, it never went away. And and Ken, I, I vividly remember, you know, you really sort of embraced the performance aspect of that. But here's the thing that really gets me about about this, because again, I'm fixated on certain narratives and stories that I see and and connections and everything else, and so I've been banging my my. David and and Roger lyrical drum and here's the this is the thing that just 
gets me giddy about mother is they turn that on their head or on its head. And David Gilmore's very soothing, smooth vocal delivery actually becomes the sinister aspect of this song. And I freaking love it. <laughs> I do remember initially learning it. It felt a bit controversial. Like, can we pull this off? Like, are we allowed to do a sinister ballad? And then it just kind of worked its way in. And it fit. Well, as I recall, we didn't start playing this until four fifths of a pretty good deal. I don't yeah. think we, I think it was because we had more of a scaled down um, you know, lineup. So I think that's when it was started. So it, it made more sense to do a slower song. That's just a thought. Huh. Indeed. But um, that's when I would have been old enough to have some of the emotional, political leanings of somebody like a Roger Waters. I mean, I, I was, you know, very young and couldn't comprehend everything he talked about, but I had seen, you know, I had, I had videotaped the wall off of MTV in my VHS, no matter how battered had, had been watched time and time again. And I think I did in, internalize the message of the movie and knew who Roger Waters was. And, uh, yeah, probably desperately wanted to, to, to take a stab at this for years. I was lucky that you guys would go for it. So this, it happens before this, but this is probably the first time that you're just like, wow. I don't know what they did to make David Gilmore's voice sound the way it sounds on the wall. But, oh, my goodness, Joe, you said smooth it's smooth, it's creamy, it's angelic. It's like he's fucking whispering these lyrics to you. And it continues that all the way through. To, to this day, when I hear Comfortably Numb on the radio or anything like that, I almost have to like pull over and like shake my head at how fucking awesome his voice sounds in his, in his parts. So I don't, know, I don't know how they did it, but it, 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 it doesn't sound... I don't think it sounds like that in any other place ever ever again uh the other thing that i want to say here is the late great jeff percaro of toto fame actually played the drums on this track which is um awesome and yet i didn't i didn't know that until i was i was you know getting ready for this and when i saw that it was like almost instantly i was like yeah you know what it makes sense yeah it it's it's not it's not nick mason it, it it's almost like i always knew but i just never thought about it before so. Well, there are groups of three in here, man. This is not your typical Pink Floyd song. That's right. And Paul, did you cover the David Gilmore voice, if I remember correctly, and I did the Waters voice? Most certainly. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't sing that. I can barely sing that low now. <laughs> you know, and, and it's funny. I, I had mentioned in the pre-show that I had, if it makes it into the cut, I had I had gone back and listened to more. <laughs> So one of one of the tracks on more is the Nile song where David is just freaking screaming at you. And yeah. so so to juxtapose that with with this it's just like wow. Okay. Spectacular. This would probably be a good time to just throw out some some kudos to Roger Waters for as heavy-handed as he became 
with you know putting his creative stamp on everything and wanting to do things his way um i i did notice throughout this some of the last couple times i listened to the wall how much david gilmore was singing and i'm glad that roger waters wasn't too heavy-handed to be like okay i want to sing the whole thing because this is my baby and this is my character and i just i want to do it so i'm I'm glad that somehow there was still i mean obviously all the guitars are are, they're brilliant and 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 everything with david gilmore on that side is like it's always been but i'm glad that he didn't roger waters didn't take it to the next step, which is really what we hear in the final cut. Um, but you know, we, there was, there's still really tasteful decisions made, uh, when you say, okay, Roger's going to sing this, David's going to sing this. And that's really part of the charm of the wall, hearing the dichotomy between the voices and the texture between the voices. And, um, they, they, Neither one of them have like incredibly pristine voices, but they're great at what they do, and they're and they're great in the Pink Floyd world. And together, they they really create a sound. And um, really glad that the wall happened this way in regards to the voices. Yeah, I, I can't I can't agree with you more, Tom. I, I do think it's it's one of the highlights, and and it is it is something that that we need to give Roger credit for, for executing this in the appropriate way and utilizing the resources at his disposal to realize his vision in an effective manner. It's. Hmm. May I suggest a third voice is the guitar solo? You may. I would, oh my uh, I would entertain that. Mm-hmm. So melodic. Um, such a joy to play and really, I guess the role is it alleviates the tension between the rest of the, I mean, it's a lullaby. It's a, it's a respite from everything else that's going on. Absolutely love it. It's the creepy ass lullaby, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I'll just add that. Mother is the end of side one oh, of the of the LP, and what a satisfying first L- side of an LP it is. And you know these six songs together are, um, it you know it, it amazes me. You know we talk about tracking of a record, you know, and and since I'm like sort of like you know a newbie to the whole vinyl thing, it's like all over again. I feel like I'm like thirteen this album is so well tracked it's tracked down to the album side and and it you know when you you think about you know all the things that we talked about you know he covers the introduction with the big bombastic rock show sort of the reflection of coming off of that show then he explores all of this with his father the school his mother and it basically sets up the adult portion of his life, which we are going to get into coming ahead. It's yeah. a, it's a, it's an absolutely terrific six song grouping that, um, yeah, it, it, it's, um, it's wonderful. I bet it goes by really fast. It does. It's not very long to begin <laughs> with, really. This is a good time to miss Richard Wright. I mean, 
you know, his Lush's voice could have been in here somewhere. I, and I'm sure on the tour, he he sang quite a bit. But yeah, at this point, he was just not yeah. not not in the Roger camp. Hmm. That that is a good point. We we had talked a little bit about Richard at the top of the episode with regards to the keyboards, but the the vocal um, absence of Richard, I think, is a different beast altogether. And I think that is definitely going to be manifest in the, the next episode. So we're going to flip the, the vinyl over and we're going to hit Goodbye Blue Sky. Now, me being me, um, you know, and, and it's one of those things. I've been, as Paul mentioned, we've been listening to this album for years. Um, never really thought much about, oh, there are birds at the start of the song. Isn't that wonderful? Because we're talking about, you know, blue sky and there are birds in the sky. That makes perfect sense. But those are not actual birds. And, you know, so I'm aware of three songs in the Pink Floyd catalog to this point that have birds in them. Um, one is Cirrus Minor, which is on Moore. The other is Grantchester Meadows, which is on Omagoma. And... I went back and listened to both of those, um, and then I listened to this directly. And in Cirrus Minor, the birds at the start of that song and that album are, in fact, they seem to be birds. Um, someone went out somewhere and recorded actual birds. What I was curious about was if the, if the bird noises in Grandchester Meadows and Goodbye Blue Sky were, in fact, just the exact same track, or if Richard was just really, really good at making bird sounds. And um, I wasn't able to determine if it was the exact same thing, but they are very, very similar in terms of that. And so, who knows? I just thought that was, you know, these are these are the weird things I do when I get an extra week to spend on an album. I never, I, I never considered the bird sounds as being anything other than what you said at the beginning. <laughs> I, I want to do my my Ken Gregory impersonation of 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 David Coverdale, where David where he. Gilmore? I'm sorry. <laughs> Ken, do you have a David Coverdale impersonation? Because I'd love to see that. <laughs> Only late model Coverdale. <laughs> wow. Wow. But I want to do my, my Ken Gregory impersonation of David Gilmore when he says, well, we, we tried to get the dog Seamus, but he had sadly <laughs> passed by this time. <laughs> so another weird thing happened as I was listening to this in the last week. And I wasn't able to track this down, so you guys can tell me if I'm just, you know, overworked or what. But as I was listening to this song in particular, and this song I've always absolutely loved. I think it's it's very, it, it's so haunting and beautiful at the same time, which I love sort of being pulled in those two different directions. But as I was listening to it most recently, it Dada's self-titled album just popped into my head and wouldn't wouldn't hmm. leave. I went back there. There are two tracks on there that, that might have done this. One is called outside, which the uh, connection is, is obvious. And the other one is goodbye. Both of those are acoustic type songs. Um, but neither one was as dead a ringer as I had sort of imagined in my head. But like I said, for whatever reason, I couldn't stop thinking about it after it, it hmm. got into my head. Yeah. You're right about that. That uh, you're the Dada song has that, um, that that progression kind of thing. Of course, the ultimate ripoff. Once again, there's this like there's sort of this 
back and forth interplay between these two bands. The ultimate ripoff of the Goodbye Blue Sky riff is, of course, the song Hysteria by Def Leppard. Um, it all comes back to Def Leppard. <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think I think that was actionable. Actually. <laughs> I'm, I'm surprised they never they never jumped on that one. Ah, oh, but Hysteria is it's a really good song. It is a great song. It is it is a well. Well, wait a minute. I know we're not quite there yet, but Empty Spaces is another spot that Queensryche mm-hmm. borrows from. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. We've been all over that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But no, we were the, on that with um, Wish You Were Here, though. That we, it was Wish You Were Here that we were talking yeah. about it. But this is another, this is another one. But, um, all right. Yeah. <laughs> That, the the haunting because the palaver just has extra lawyers to spare. We're going to go to work on this. That's right. The hauntingness of this is is wonderful. Um, the voices, and you know, I know we're not supposed to talk about the movie, but you know, Jerry Scarf did a pretty amazing job with this this part. Once you see those images, it's kind of hard to ever not think of them when you hear the song. It's funny you said that, Paul, because I, I in thinking about this episode tonight. And, and the ground rules we set out, I thought exactly that same thing. It is almost impossible to not think about that that visual um, sequence in the movie. So in the interest of keeping things moving, I, I'd like to go into empty spaces. Mm. And and Tom, you're absolutely right. A, a complete uh, a complete Queensryche ripoff, or Queensryche rips them off. But I, I pulled up, um, I've been on what is it azlyrics.com and I just to sort of remind myself the lyrics in a way that's easy to read and and it has in brackets here at the start of this backwards message were you guys aware of this I mean I know I'm oblivious but Mm, no I was not not at all okay um you know what I don't know what it is but for some reason it's not really um it's not really catching me off guard that you're saying this so here's here's what's listed, and and again, I I've never if it's there, I never really paid attention to it. Um, I'm going to go back and look at it now. It, if it's it, it must have some legs if it's on here. It according to this, here is the backwards message. Hello, Luca. Parentheses hunters. Congratulations, you have just discovered the secret message. Please send your answer to Old Pink, care of the Funny Farm, Chalfont. Dot dot dot. Roger, Carolyn's on the phone. Okay. Wow. Okay. <laughs> okay. So um, yeah, we're gonna go. Uh, we're gonna go um, flip some some tracks. Yeah. Um, Paul, you've got the LP. I, you can spin it backwards. I can do it now, motherfucker. <laughs> um, yeah. So it, the the voices are there bef- right before the what shall like yeah. that's where it is. So. But I, but I've never really thought anything, you know, because by this time listening to Pink Floyd, I'm just like, yeah, there's voices everywhere. I can't tell what they're saying. But all right, that's fascinating. That is it's fascinating. a good thing. Good thing that this is the best thing about this. Like people spent like you know decades trying to figure that shit out, and now it's all at our fingertips. Ah, the information age, man. So I, I was going to say that you know, for me, empty spaces is just fantastically killer connective tissue and and that's what it's designed to do and it 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 just moves you so beautifully 
um, from from Goodbye Blue Sky into Young Lust, and and that that moment when it just drops you right into Young Lust, it's it's beautiful, but at the same time, it's not it's not throwaway, right? Because what what Roger does sing here, it, and, and the way he sings it, you know, like. We've now moved ahead in 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 the protagonist, if that's the word we want to use, live life. So we have this this grown man, and he's he started to you know um, construct this wall, but he's got a couple of spaces left. He's not totally sealed off, and it's like, you know, what am I going to do to fill those in? A and well. David's going to tell us what he's going to do to right. fill those in. And and mm -hmm. I just I think that relationship, you know, the the way that we keep the wall metaphor going is is so well done. I love it. Yeah. Now to that end, there is a piece of this that is ha, was omitted from the album, right? There's another part to this that's called What Shall We Do Now? that gets tacked on in it's in the movie. Yeah. I'm sure it's performed and in some instances live. Um, I, I, I'm curious to know everyone's opinion because I think that this is one of those things where, you know, people who may consider themselves, if this is such a thing, a true fan would be like, oh, well, that's the definitive because that's really how the song was, was originally done. But they, they took it out because they, they felt the narrative flowed better without it and i agree with that uh, just because of exactly what you said joe the way that it's small subtle it's not throwaway and it 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 still delivers what you need and they, it, it's it's masterful so i i'm curious to know what you guys think about the uh, the other part of that i would like to save my thoughts when we talk about the live performance because it it, okay. it does it, it does present a different spin on it and i there are there's probably, I would have to guess, a a stage component for why they needed that there. Um, but we, okay. I, I think that maybe is better discussed in in that episode personally because it, it does show up there and not here. Um, it, it it's an interesting point, and I don't want to go you know too far down the rabbit hole. I mentioned also it, at the top of the episode when the tigers broke free, which shows up on right. Echoes. The uh, the best of compilation. It's a two disc compilation that apparently was supposed to be on this record um, and and was excised because it it ultimately is not needed. It would have been presumably somewhere before this, probably very in the beginning, um, because it does describe ultimately um, the events that would lead to the the death of, of you know the character's father or Roger's father, or however you want to describe that. So you know, I, I don't know where to talk about that. I do know that I very much enjoy it. It's a very powerful piece. Um, but hearing it as an adult today and thinking about this album, I, I have difficulty seeing where it would have fit in here. So I think it again, yeah. it was another good decision it, to not put it in because I don't think the narrative suffers in any way, shape, or form. 100% agree. Young Lust. Pink Floyd does immoral rock lyrics. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> Henceforth known as IRL. That is correct. 
Um, you know, something that we as as um, juvenile teenage boys were very um, entertained by, as juvenile boys often are. Um, but you know, Roger Waters is well. I, who did Roger write the lyrics here, and and David wrote presumably the the music. Um, whoever, whichever one wrote the lyrics. I mean, it's it's not. It's not raunchy in any way, shape, or form. Again, it communicates exactly the sort of sex, drugs, and and rock and roll lifestyle that you know is is so um, sensationalized as part of of the the seventies you know rock scene, and and it just it again it clearly communicates you know in the in the previous track our our character was saying hmm you know. I still got a couple spaces left. How am I going to fill it in? All right, I'm going to go start philandering and partying and doing all the things that are going to get me into enough trouble that I can fill in these couple empty spaces. And you know, it again, it it just drives the story, but it does it in a very you know engaging way. And and it's it's a rock song to describe the rock and roll lifestyle. It's it's just there's no there's no sonic dissonance here. It's hand in hand. Yeah. And and it does the job. Philandering. I love that you said that. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a progressive palaver if I don't have a 25-cent word, Paul. I'm, I'm going to really try in the next couple of days to use the word philandering in my <laughs> daily speech. <laughs> Actually, this song, Joe, you had mentioned Mothers being the song that Surface Tension played a lot. I think we played Young Lust more. I think this was beyond four fifths of a pretty good deal. This was like um, one that we played almost throughout the history of the band. Am I wrong, guys? I, I think we did play I, it in your year. I'm sorry. I remember playing it. I remember playing it um, near the football field on a stage for field day or some celebratory day. And, and, that, and that young lust at a school function. I freaking love it. That's baller, yeah. man. <laughs> hey, listen. We played uh, that song by Tease called "Looking for Action" at, <laughs> at high school. I mean, come on. There's nothing we wouldn't do. We we had no idea what we were doing. Paul, um, it probably took you all of about two minutes to learn the lyrics to Young Lust. <laughs> right. I'm sure you knew them already. But the music, now that we're on the subject, was was not entirely simple there is a really interesting groove happening here and then you get that little um the boogie guitar part that kind of swings in, in the little bridge there and it's it, it's a really interesting composition it's got a little strut to it you know you know and, and this is this is one of the things that that you know sets Pink Floyd apart, right? It, you know, they're they're able to do these things, um, you know, where where they're bringing in sort of these different types of influences, and it at first blush it sounds simple, but when you think about it, you're like, well, wait a second, that's not simple at all, right? It's very cool. Yeah, mm -hmm. particularly the bass line kind of really rings out. Is is doing some boogie woogie stuff here. Well, and 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 Tom had brought it up earlier on uh, another brick in the wall part two. I I think 
you know, Roger Waters is really bringing it as a bass player on this record as a whole. I, I find mm -hmm. myself oftentimes paying attention to him. I mean, you know, as long as David's not shredding my face off. Well, I mean, they, they leave it at two verses, two minutes and three seconds. I mean, it's just, just a really compact, beautiful thing. I, I mean, I guess that's why we had to do Empty Spaces before. I mean, the two together really make the song. One of my turns. Now, there are parts to this that, you know, this, this is where sort of the, the stage performance, the stage musical starts to come in. You start to get this sort of production aspect to it. And, you know, there are parts to this that I like and parts that I don't really care for. Um, but I understand why it's there and it does ultimately mm. all serve the story. But it, it does, it, it, one of the things that the, the opening part of this does with, with the girl and, and trying to engage this man who is clearly disengaged does is it, it just builds that tension. And you start to feel uncomfortable for this girl. And you're like, what the hell is she doing with this guy? And what the hell is going to happen, right? Um, and... And when Roger starts singing, it doesn't get any better. Um, you know, the, the, the first part of, of, the, of the vocal um, line is, it's very soft, you know, and, but it's, it's disturbing as all get out. And it, it, the, the ending lines have always captivated and creeped me out. I feel cold as a razor blade, tight as a tourniquet, dry as a funeral drum. And you're like, oh my God, this guy is right on the freaking edge. And then, boom, we're going to go past the edge. And he <laughs> loses his shit. And I mean, again, in terms of, of communicating a story, fucking brilliant, dude. Let's Go through it. He explodes there. Run to the bedroom on the suitcase. In the suitcase on the left, you'll find my favorite axe. This, wow, this, wow, wow, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It, so it, it, it's so <laughs> funny. There's a double meaning there between, yeah. you know, a, a weapon of violence and a guitar. And then don't look so frightened. This is just in passing phase. One of my bad days. Um, very obvious on the face. And then. Would you like to watch TV or get between the sheets? This is where I was always freaked out or contemplate the silent freeway. Yes. What is that? Why would he even end a line with that? That was always so bizarre to me. I, oh. I've, I've, for 40 years, I've been contemplating this silent freeway. Well, I, I, I fucking I, love that. Because right, 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 a couple songs ago, he said, what shall we do to fill the empty spaces where we used to talk? And and for for me, a lot of like this whole part is just internal. Like he's, you know, when he's sitting there and ignoring her, he's it's it's his inside head. When he's freaking out and destroying things or whatever he's doing, he is. It's a, all an internal monologue. I fucking love that line the best. Contemplate this silent freeway. Would you like something to eat? I mean, it's just it, it mm -hmm. it's it is. All at once, I mean, so it's delivered in this manic sort of just rage. But there's a commentary here 
that's that's sort of describing uh, all the things that we're talking about, right? About relationships going south and and this this wall in between people, the people who are alienated from each other, where there's there's nothing going on. There's no communication. There's no emotional exchange. Why don't we have something to eat? <laughs> you know, don't look so frightened. I know I'm freaking out and you're looking at me like I'm, you know, going to go through the roof, but it's, it's, it's just a passing phase. It'll go away. Like it just, it, it is. And, and, you know, I, 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 it, it makes me go gaga basically. Sorry. I, I always interpreted that line as uh, sarcasm, but. Um, I'm, you know, it's, I, I think he, he a little, I think that there is some self-awareness there. I, I, I don't I don't disagree with that. I, I think I think it's very sarcastic. I just love the the fact that it's there. Like I love the fact that I just love the juxtaposition of those of those things. You're right. Like right. it is sarcastic. Should we contemplate the silent freeway, which is kind of ironic in its in itself? And uh oh no, let's just get something to eat instead then. And I <laughs> believe I misheard it maybe originally as contemplate the violent freeway, which mm can create a lot of maybe images right there. Yeah. I I feel bad, but can I take a dump on all of this? <laughs> oh no. Is it is it possible that it's actually as literal as it seems? So presumably as, you know, as portrayed in in the movie and I guess the stage show, I'm not exactly sure, we are in some sort of a hotel room. And so he, he says, or contemplate the silent freeway. Now, if you are in a hotel room with a sealed window and you can see the freeway, but you cannot hear the freeway, that would be the silent freeway. And shortly after then, there is the sound of breaking glass. And that's when he asks people if they want to learn how to fly. So, I mean, I've always interpreted this, Paul. And, and again, here's the beauty of it, because we can each interpret this and experience it in our own way. I've always interpreted it as everything up into run to the bedroom is internal, but everything after run to the bedroom is, in fact, very genuine, very external, and actually happening. I've always interpreted it as a literal um, description of what's going what's going on because at the end of the whole thing you know why are you running away yeah because th this girl is freaked the fuck out that's why but the way the 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 pain that is expressed with that i mean think about how you would feel if some lunatic did this well I have some. Yeah, I have some indication. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and it's just like holy shit. So you know, but yeah. but I, you know, I, I certainly see see what you're you're talking about as well. So you know, I don't know what the right answer is, and maybe one day we'll take Roger out to dinner and he'll tell us. But I don't know. Yeah, I it, I wouldn't believe him if he did because it's been so long. I think he just changes it to to the whims of his uh you know, moment. But I think that's the beauty of it, right? Because I can totally one hundred percent get behind exactly what you're saying, and I think I would enjoy it just as much. Um, and and I guess the the, the part of me that 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 you know maybe maybe swings it at least now in my in my thought thinking to the internal is that 
the, 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 for me, what's going on here is you said, Joe, he's finishing the wall, right? He's, he's making the final steps to say, okay, I'm out. Like, you know, he's decided to fill those last empty spaces with the philandering and um, other things. And it almost like the, the, the woman in the hotel room, the, the, whoever he's freaking out, whoever's running away, whoever he's going to sing, don't leave me now to, it doesn't matter who it is because he is really um, reflecting upon his, his broken relationship with his wife. And that, that's an excellent point, right? Because, and we skipped over the whole phone thing, right? At the end of Young Lust, which how fantastic is whoever played the operator there yeah. How how wonderfully obtuse and dense and unintentionally painful is that performance? So at the end of all of this, our 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 protagonist now has a floozy running out of his hotel room, but he also very much knows that his wife is leaving him. And you're absolutely right. That don't leave me or why are you running away? And and going into don't leave me now, you know, it, it but why are you running away? It could be either one of those. Yep. Um, it's yeah. brilliant. Yeah. Interestingly, there is no female phone operator credited in the wikis. So actually right. that was an actual phone call they made. Um, that's why, oh. um, the, one of the many documentaries I watched on this and it, after I saw this, I was like, well, of course they did it this way. I mean, all the ways that they do any sort of sound design in the past or, or voiceover, um, it, it, I don't know why it shocked me that they did it this way, but they actually made a call um, and they had to do it several times because they wanted to get a certain response from the operator. And I want to say it was actually uh, one of those, like maybe like, the, on the third or fourth call, they didn't have to do too many, but um, they they set this up, you know. Yeah. You know, and they actually got that response from the operator, and that's that, that's like the real deal. That's, that's amazing. Like the lady. That's fucking great. That. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the audio quality is 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 awesome. Like those little clicks that you hear. Yeah. And it it it's the the wonders of analog electronics you hear that little mm. well i mean they may have um, gone to switzerland to make the phone call you know <laughs> that's true <laughs> right well i mean real quick just going back like one song I, the, a quick note i had on when the girl's walking through the room and then she goes into the bathroom she goes want to take a bath um it always it's just one of the reasons I got into sound design. There's um, always this subliminal thing that 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 happens with 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 really good sound design. And as many times as you hear this, you would always know that she's in a bathroom because there's just that slight reverb on mm -hmm. her voice. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, even a band. You know, it, it's so great that a band would do something like this. Back in the day, we're talking like, you know, almost, you know, 40 some years ago um, that a band would um, really 
take the steps to paint a picture properly. And, you know, sure enough, because, you know, even before the movie, you know, they're taking us through the rooms and she's walking through the rooms. It's, it's just like a really nice touch from a sound design point of view. Yeah. Um, so sorry, I missed that note when we are we're actually talking about that. But awesome. um, good stuff. Yeah. Awesome. Well, and quick segue to the mix. Wasn't it mixed in Los Angeles, if I remember correctly? That sounds I, right. I, so. Yeah. yeah, so it's the Just United time States for the is calling. Yeah, the United States right. calling. Right. So, right. so they could have been still throwing this in during the mix down. That would make a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. And here's the beauty of it, right? The way we talked, Paul, you talked about tracking of this album. I mean, the the way that the concept is introduced and the wall is constructed in its entirety on disc one, whether that's CD or vinyl is absolutely perfect. And, and that obviously even um, translated into the stage show, which we'll get to later. And, and so it, it, it really sets the stage then literally for what's going to happen on the, on the second disc where once you have that wall completed, what happens? What's mm -hmm. the outcome of that? And, you know, I think, I think the last three tracks on, on this, this disc here, don't leave me now another brick in the wall, part three and, and goodbye cruel world. They express the pain of filling in those holes. And it's, it's like, this is what I set out to do. And it's one of those things, be careful what you wish for. Right. And, mm -hmm. You know, each one of those is a little bit different. So Don't Leave Me Now is is very plaintive, um, but it's very graphic in terms of describing the way that he has, you know, abused either his wife or, or these girls on the road or, or whatever. Um, another brick in the wall then amps up that anger. It's like, all right, fuck all of you people. I'm going to close this bad boy off. And then, you know, goodbye, cruel world just says, all right, I'm out. And the wall's done. And it just, I mean, you could have ended it right here. And you would have been like, wow, that was a fucking great album. But we're only halfway mm. done. <laughs> yeah. Joe, you, you know, you mentioned earlier Roger Waters bringing it vocally. I think Don't Leave Me Now is... is is maybe one of the greatest vocals of all time. And it's not because it's perfectly executed. It, it is, it's mixed actually really small, but, but it, but the way he delivers all of the lines and the passion and emotion and the grief that, that is expressed in it is just, blockbuster and then at the very end where he holds that note and the whole band comes in and the guitar comes in it's it's just lush so it's, it, it may be my favorite part on the whole first half of the album i don't disagree with you i mean is it we've come across in in episodes we've done on the palaver before we've come across a couple of of these 
defining emotional vocal performances and it's it's maybe not technically in the same realm but based on what you said is this in the neighborhood of a standing in the swing or um a mama you know something that literally just rips something out of the of the singer i think it is i think those are great parallels i guess that brings us then to the end of of disc one and i look forward to ramping up the the musical stage performance aspect as we move into uh into uh disc two because you know it's yeah oh, it, there's there's so much here and this is again i am in awe that Roger was able to conceive this vision. Roger was able to work with this huge cast of characters to create this vision and bring it all together so well. And oh, by the way, ahead of schedule in order to get a couple extra points out of the record company. Absolutely stunning. Yes. Well, I mean, let's, you know, let's not forget he sort of had there a take, take no pri prisoners attitude towards, uh, you know, towards well, and, that. And, and, and obviously there's going to be fallout from that. Uh, you yeah. know, uh, when you fire your keyboardist halfway through recording, um, you know. <laughs> and, and, the, and then threaten to take all your, your, uh, your hockey pucks and go home. Yeah. You know, you're right. It is an incredible accomplishment. And I, I mean, uh, you're so sick of hearing this. You'll probably edit this out. But good Lord. I mean. The vinyl, the two sides are just fucking incredible. It sounds so good. If if you don't have this on vinyl, you should all go get it because it's just it literally it has changed the experience of listening to this for me in ways that I never imagined. Right, and and it will become when we open up the the conversation next week on the second album. I'm gonna blow you away with what with with you know <laughs> what 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 I've experienced in the last couple of weeks. I can't wait. So I can't wait. That is a great segue. I, yeah, Ken. I don't know that we fully did the exposition on "Don't Leave Me Now." I've got a quote here that might wrap it up nicely. Roger Waters on Radio One. Well, a lot of men and women do get involved with each other for lots of wrong reasons. And they do get very aggressive towards each other and do each other a lot of damage. I, of course, have never struck a woman, as far as I can recall. And I hope I never do. But a lot of people have. And a lot of women have struck men as well. There is a lot of violence in relationships often that aren't working. I mean, this is obviously an extremely cynical song. I don't feel like that about marriage now. So Roger Waters, sans accent. And uh, it, he's just admitting how hyperbolic he is because there are just so many dramatic sections of this album. And you wonder, you know, does he really feel this way? Does he think, is he taking artistic license? And that's probably one of, you know, the, the more kind of defining statements that he has about you know how he thinks about this relationship issue on this album i i i like that you said that ken i have to tell you this though it is it's almost a, a little because i'm not saying that you said this like the article the article pointing out that hey it's okay everybody roger waters isn't really like this right 
And I don't know, Ken, if you were here when I said, you know, I spent so many times talking to different people about what the wall could actually be about. And one of the things, and I was told this at a very young age that, oh yeah, Roger Waters was an asshole. He hates women. He hates uh, Jews and blacks. And, 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 and I, 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 how old was I? 13, 14. And I, and I'm looking at this person thinking, no, he doesn't like, don't you, don't you get this? It's, this is, it's music. It's a song. It's, it's a movie. It's not a story. It's not Roger Waters. It's, you know, and, and so it's, um, I, I don't know. I just wanted to throw that out there. Cause I, cause I've, I, I, it's going to come up next week when we talk through some of the more, um, you know, you mentioned it earlier and it's going to come up again uh, next week. And, and I think that's a really, really good point because there is so much of Roger that's put in here that everyone wants to assume that it's a literal interpretation of Roger. But I mean, Roger is, he's a performer. He's a showman. He understands that sometimes you have to, you know, exaggerate, elaborate, and bring things in in order to make a point that is not a, a, a factual translation of real life for him. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm, Ken, I'm very glad that you, you were able to bring that in because it does, you know, it, it's an easy trap to fall into. And so mm. I'm glad that we did not. Indeed. Um, <laughs> glad you agree. Yeah, that was an amazing sound effect right there. That was. I mean, that was like a that... David Lee Roth sound effect. I mean, that ah. was. <laughs> <sighs> All right. So with with that, um, before my computer completely blows up, yeah, I'm going to uh, I'm going to say that this was fantastic. I very much look forward to finishing out this next week. And gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. I would just like to say I can't believe we've made it all this way without mentioning Sid Barrett. Damn it! Damn it! Damn it! I have failed. The only member of the Floyd that digressed into violence in the later years would have been Sid. So maybe, maybe, maybe Roger, if he was being completely honest, would have made a reference to Sid in that quote. There you go. Good. Good. There you good go. Call out. All right. So, gentlemen, until next week. Thank you. All right. you've enjoyed this episode of progressive palaver as always we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you and look forward to your thoughts comments questions and feedback what are your interpretations of the wall you can reach us on instagram facebook and twitter we are at prog pala on all of those or search for progressive palaver you're welcome to email us our email address is progpala at gmail.com Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, at some point Pandora, or presumably wherever you do get your podcast. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening.